National Trust Magazine, Spring 2022. Hello and welcome to the spring issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news and features. Our cover article this issue is on Beatrix Potter. Beatrix Potter was a remarkable storyteller, enchanting readers of all ages with her timeless tales of Peter Rabbit, Benjamin Bunny and so many other characters. Beatrix's own story is no less compelling, from her stifling Victorian London upbringing to the freedom she found on holiday in the Lake District, which, in turn, inspired her later life as a conservationist and hill farmer. She was one of the greatest supporters the Trust has ever had, championing our cause during her lifetime and leaving thousands of acres of farmland in our care in her will. A new exhibition of her possessions, created in collaboration between the v Museum and the National Trust, opens at the v in London from the 12th of February and will be running throughout the year. Do see it if you can. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the article by curator Helen Antrobus about Beatrix and the items in the exhibition as much as I did. Here's Akia Henry, Glenn McGreedy and Olivia Vinnell to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. The Trust is leading a four-year project called Changing Chalk to revive 815 hectares of land across the eastern South Downs and to help reconnect local people with the landscape. The UK's chalk grassland is an internationally rare habitat for wildlife, home to unusual wildflowers and butterflies. Chalk grassland is sometimes referred to as Europe's tropical rainforest, where up to 40 species of flowering plants can be found in one square metre, but intensive farming and other pressures have seen four-fifths lost in recent decades. Now, a £2 million National Lottery Heritage Fund grant will help breathe new life into this ancient landscape. Ten partner organisations will deliver 18 interconnected projects to support its care and restoration, returning 60 hectares of golf course to Chalk Downland, and establishing new human-made dew ponds, meadows and habitats for pollinators. Chalk grassland habitat will also be introduced into urban areas, and community activities have been planned to celebrate local connections to the Downs. Richard Henderson, the Trust's Assistant Director of Operations for London and the South East, says, The need to bring together nature, people and heritage has never felt more important. Changing chalk will protect and restore the South Downs landscape for people to enjoy, for well-being, for nature's recovery and climate resilience into the future. The National Trust is taking part in celebrations to mark Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this year. Places in trust care will join other landmarks around the country in lighting beacons on the 2nd of June and supporters can revel in picnics, fetes and festivities at many trust spots nationwide. We'll also be taking part in the Queen's Green Canopy, an initiative which encourages everyone to plant a tree for the Jubilee. We'll plant and restore avenues of trees at trust places and dedicate ancient woodlands and trees to mark the Queen's 70 years of service. A rare 15th century tapestry, the oldest in trust care, has returned to Montacute House in Somerset after four years of conservation. Specialist conservators at the Trust Textile Conservation Studio in Norfolk spent 1,300 hours cleaning and hand-sewing the tapestry, which is 3.5 metres high. 
The tapestry was part of a larger set commissioned in 1477 by French nobleman Jean de Dion. Ancient and veteran trees provide crucial habitats for wildlife, but their numbers are declining rapidly. Thanks to a grant from the DEFRA Green Recovery Fund, we're working with the Woodland Trust to carry out surveys of the ancient and veteran trees at trust places across the east of England to find out about their health and how we can best protect them. We're also working to restore some ancient woodlands at risk of being overrun by invasive species. The pandemic has seen a surge in dog ownership, with many people finding that having a dog has encouraged them to spend more time in nature. After feedback that members would like to be able to plan their visits with a dog more easily, the Trust has responded by adding a new feature in this year's handbook. Everywhere that welcomes dogs is now listed with a paw print rating that indicates how dog-friendly it is. Places with one paw print allow dogs, but facilities may be limited, such as at Knights Hayes in Devon, where dogs are welcome on leads in Parkland all year round, but only between November and February in the formal garden. Places with three paw prints are the best for a day with your dog, such as Giant's Causeway in County Antrim, where your dog can enjoy the visitor centre with you and join tours if on a lead. To plan your visit, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash dog dash walking. Exquisite items from the 18th century doll's house at Upark House in West Sussex are back on display following conservation. Miniature four-poster beds, curtains and chairs have undergone specialist cleaning and repair at the Trust's textile conservation studio in Norfolk. The delicate work has also restored many of the doll's costumes, such as the satin outfit of a baby doll in a cradle. The kitchen garden at Florence Court in County Fermanagh is to be restored to its former glory and productivity. Thanks to £417,800 from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the Trust will work with the local community to reinstate the two glasshouses, which will be used for horticulture, volunteer learning and community activity. Climate change is the single biggest threat to the places in Trust care, with beaches, countryside and historic sites all feeling its effects. As one of the UK's largest landowners, we are committed to working to mitigate the effects of climate change and restore nature back to health. By adapting our houses, collections, land and operations, and by planting and establishing 20 million trees, the Trust will be carbon net zero by 2030. We're stepping up our efforts in the fight against climate change, but we need governments to do the same. Lizzie Carlyle, the Trust's Head of Environmental Practices, says, Without policy, resources and clear leadership, we risk losing sights of historical and national significance to the worst effects of climate change. Last autumn saw a chance for change. Glasgow played host to the world's largest conference on climate change, with global leaders uniting at COP26 to present their plans to cut carbon emissions. The Trust appealed to world leaders at COP26, with the Woodland Trust, the National Trust for Scotland and the RSPB. We asked for a commitment to bring forward a ban on producing compost using peat, which stores 3.2 billion tonnes of carbon in the UK, and to protect and restore nature. 
our Director General, Hilary McGrady, and Head of Nature Conservation and Restoration Ecology, Ben McCarthy, both spoke at COP, outlining how nature can be embedded into global plans. To find out more, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash climate dash change. And those were some highlights from the spring news. The 126th AGM of the National Trust was held at the Harrogate Convention Centre on Saturday the 30th of October 2021. Here's a roundup of the key topics and resolutions. The National Trust's 126th AGM began with thanks. On behalf of the Trust, Interim Chair Orna Nikiona Turner thanked Tim Parker for his seven years as Chair, retiring trustees John Sell and David Smart, and senior staff Paul Boniface and Mark Harold, who between them have dedicated five decades to the charity. The year 2020 should have been one of celebration of the Trust's 125-year anniversary. Instead, it was unforgettable for all the wrong reasons. Never in our history has the Trust had to close every pay-to-view property or stop recruiting new members at them. The collapse in revenue meant a £213 million loss against budget. Despite furloughing staff, freezing projects and drawing on unrestricted reserves, there was no practical alternative to reducing core costs. Staff numbers have been reduced to 2016 levels, half through voluntary redundancy. These measures, helped by online donations four times the usual level, have allowed us to resume some capital projects and plan with confidence. Trustees reflected on the debate over the different lenses of history in the presentation of our houses. Three principles emerged. Research and scholarship are part of our remit. Facts will be presented without judgment and oversimplification avoided, and the views of members will be respected. Though the shadow of the pandemic will be felt for some years, the Trust can look to the future with optimism. Director-General Hilary McGrady also reflected on the trials of 2020 and expressed her gratitude to the Trust's partners, staff, members and volunteers who had helped us come through them and find our feet again. An astonishing proportion of visitors stayed with us when visits were impossible. The Trust rose to the needs of the time, when the value of space for people to escape and recover had never been more appreciated. Some places received five times the normal number of visitors, but the pandemic shed light on unequal access to green spaces, hence our work creating more in Plymouth and Manchester, as well as many blossom gardens in towns and cities. Most feedback sought reassurance that we remain focused on conservation and care of our places. We do, and over £360 million will be spent over the next three years on houses, gardens and collections, and £113 million on the coast and countryside. On the eve of COP26, the effects of climate change are already evident in fires, floods and landslides at Trust Places. The Trust will establish 20 million trees and reach carbon net zero by 2030. Through Heritage Open Days, participation in the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and Commonwealth Games, and the Trust and V&A's exhibition, Beatrix Potter, Drawn to Nature, 
the trust is returning to our commitments and work with optimism. Paul Roberts, senior member of council, spoke of the nominations committee's work in finding a successor to Tim Parker as the trust's chair. In holding the board of trustees to account, the council recognised that there were bound to be disagreements over how the unprecedented challenges of COVID were faced, but the trust was in sound financial shape to deliver its strategy. The usual broad spectrum of questions was asked, including about the trust's renewable energy and its role in COP26, grouse shooting on trust land, the impact of red kites on ground-nesting birds, land use for tree planting versus farming, hedgerows, sustainable packaging in our shops, and engagement with 18 to 25-year-olds. To a question about the lessons learned from the pandemic, the chair made three points. How much people valued the trust and its work, that online meetings had improved efficiency and reduced our carbon footprint, and that one had to plan pessimistically. The exceptional number of members' resolutions unavoidably diminished the time for discussion, but heartfelt arguments were heard from many points of view. Curatorial redundancies and a perception that their authority and expertise were being diminished informed the first resolution. We heard that the Trust always put conservation first in decision-making, and that 27 houses with specialist collections have dedicated curators supported by 16 specialist national curators. The resolution was not carried. The Trust was keen to hear opinion about the resolution to ban trail hunting, which was carried, and trustees will now consider the range of opinions expressed by both sides. Discussion on the resolution about the provision of defibrillators focused on whether a risk-based assessment might be better than the suggested criterion of 40,000 visitors. The resolution was carried. The Trust supported the resolution on full disclosure of the remuneration of senior staff, and it was carried. Eloquent arguments were made about the impacts of overcrowding at properties. The resolution requesting the Trust commit to a consultative review by the 2022 AGM was carried. The resolution calling for volunteers to be treated in a thoughtful and respectful way was supported by personal testimonies, but countered by volunteers whose experience had been wholly positive. The motion was not carried. Finally, the trustees' resolution on digital futures to allow greater electronic participation and communication with members was carried. Mike Innerdale, Regional Director, North England, closed the AGM with an inspiring celebration of the Trust's properties in the region. Elected to the National Trust Council were Sarah Green, Min Grimshaw, Caroline Kay, Sandy Nairn, Andrew Poles and Guy Trahane. For a recording of the event, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. Our next feature is from the Director-General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. After the period we've all been through, I think many of us are looking forward to new beginnings and fresh opportunities. And the year 2022 will be full of exciting moments. The national calendar is bursting with festivals, exhibitions and sporting events. And we're joining in the fun at the places we look after by celebrating nature, beauty and history and all the joy they bring. 
As the UK explores creativity with a national festival, the National Trust will also focus on places that have inspired creativity and innovation. From the Beatles homes in Liverpool to Hilltop, Beatrix Potter's farmhouse in Cumbria. Beatrix's remarkable life is celebrated this year with a major new exhibition created in collaboration between the Trust and the V&A Museum. Beatrix Potter, Drawn to Nature, which opens on the 12th of February at the V&A in London, tells the story of the author's life and explores her conservation, natural history and artistic achievements through rarely seen personal letters, family photos, sketches and watercolours. Celebrating creativity isn't just about historic figures, but also fostering future excellence. Craft skills are at the heart of the conservation of our houses and gardens, and the new Heritage Skills Centre at Coles Hill is ensuring they are passed on to future generations. The centre is a hub for artisan crafts and traditional skills, with training courses for the public and educational opportunities. This year also marks Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is the first celebrated by any British monarch. We'll be lighting beacons, and many trust properties are planning fates, picnics and garden parties, so people can gather to mark this historic occasion. At the heart of our plans to commemorate the Queen's 70-year reign will be our contribution to the Queen's Green Canopy, which encourages people across the UK to plant a tree for the Jubilee. To play our part, we'll be planting and restoring tree avenues across trust places, as well as dedicating areas of ancient woodland to the initiative. Our specialist tree conservationists also plan to propagate a selection of the veteran trees we look after in order to conserve these venerable species. The trust's commitment to access to nature and green space doesn't stop at our boundaries. Following in the footsteps of our founder, Octavia Hill, we're committed to improving access to nature in our towns and cities. Many people find peace in places where we can connect with nature. But for some in urban areas, that space can be hard to find. That's why I'm excited to see our plans come into life this year on the development of the Castlefield Viaduct in Manchester. We're working in partnership with the local community, government bodies, businesses and supporters to transform this iconic piece of the city's industrial heritage into an elevated urban park. It will be an important part of our plan to create more green corridors for people and for wildlife. Sometimes all we need is a reminder to slow down and notice the beauty of nature around us. When the Trust first launched Hashtag Blossom Watch in 2020, we were overwhelmed by the response as people stopped to admire and share the wonder of the UK's blossom season. This year, we're thrilled to be continuing our annual celebration of Blossom. As part of this year's celebrations, we're delighted to be working with the Birmingham 2022 Festival, a six-month arts and cultural programme for the city and the wider West Midlands. We're planning Blossom installations in unexpected places, and we'll be planting Blossom trees in communities across the city, so we can bring the joy of Blossom to even more people. Wherever you are, I hope you can join in some of the many moments of celebration that 2022 has in store. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. You can hear more about the fight to save traditional skills in Track 8 and Blossom Watch in Track 7. In the next track, you can learn more about the Beatrix Potter Drawn to Nature exhibition, 
which will be opening at the V&A this spring. Beloved children's author and illustrator Beatrix Potter was also an ardent conservationist, scientist and Lake District Hill farmer who left much of her property and land to the National Trust for everyone to enjoy. A new exhibition of Beatrix's possessions, created in collaboration between the V&A and the National Trust, explores her life story. The article is written by Helen Antrobus, the Trust's Assistant National Curator for Cultural Landscapes, who also co-curated the exhibition. The article is read by Olivia Vinnell. It takes a remarkable imagination to picture ducks in bonnets and frogs fishing for minnows, or envisage an abandoned mine entrance in the mountainside as the home of a tiny hedgehog laundress. Beatrix Potter's charming characters and their stories have delighted the young at heart since they were first published in 1902. Yet while many people are familiar with Flopsy, Peter and the like, the story of their creator is less well known. This year, for the first time, Items from two of the largest collections of Beatrix Potter artefacts in the world, those of the National Trust and the V&A Museum in London, will be displayed at the V&A to bring the story of this remarkable author-illustrator to life. The exhibition, Beatrix Potter, Drawn to Nature, follows Beatrix's footsteps from artist to farmer, natural scientist to conservationist, and explores her passions and pursuits, as well as the people and places that inspired her along the way. The Potter's affluent Kensington home could at times be a stifling place to grow up, but they were a creative family, and Beatrix had unbridled access to the arts. She filled her first sketchbook by the time she was just nine years old. As a teenager, she started copying from nature books and experimenting with printing, one such experiment, a selection of ceramic trivets printed with the rabbits that Beatrix would come to be so known for, is on display in the exhibition. The healing powers of fresh air and green space were clear to Beatrix from a very young age. She was often ill as a young child, and found that her health vastly improved and her imagination came to life during the time she spent in the countryside. On one trip to her grandparents' home in Hertfordshire, she wrote, why do people live in London so much, head suddenly better without apparent cause? The Potters often spent time away from their London home. Beatrix first imagined other worlds of magic, fairies and woodland folk while on holiday on the shores of the Tay in Perthshire, Scotland. When she was 16, the family visited the Lake District for the first time and Beatrix became captivated by the dramatic landscapes similar to those she had experienced in Scotland. That holiday marked the beginning of a lifelong emotional relationship with the Lake District landscape, in which the often lonely young woman found a comfort and solace that she had not known in Kensington. With little independence back home, in the Lake District, Beatrix had the freedom to explore the scenic landscapes on foot or in her pony and trap, in her journals and letters, she describes getting lost in farmland and scrambling and sliding down fell sides in search of the perfect spot to sketch or hunt for fossils and fungi. The Beatrix we find in the country is lively, active and fearless, a contrast to the often quiet and reserved figure she was in Kensington. 
through her escapades over fell and lake, Beatrix captured in her mind the settings for her famous little books, Owl Island, Mrs. Tiggywinkle's Home in the Mountain, and Mr. McGregor's Garden. Her backdrops were only one part of her stories. Out in the countryside, Beatrix experienced the natural world on a vast scale. Back at home in London, she learned how to examine it in minute detail. As children, Beatrix and her brother Bertram transformed their nursery into a curiosity cabinet and menagerie and used a microscope to examine insect, fungi and fossil specimens. The siblings had many pets, including rabbits, lizards, mice, bats and even a little hedgehog called Mrs. Tiggy. After their deaths, the deceased pets furthered the scientific curiosity of the siblings, who would boil the skeletons to admire and examine. Beatrix even kept the pelt of her rabbit, Benjamin Bouncer, to help her make sure her drawings of rabbits were anatomically correct to the finest detail. As she grew older, Beatrix combined her artistic talents with her scientific interests, specifically mycology, the study of fungi, which took her all the way to the prominent Linnean society. As a woman, Beatrix wasn't permitted to become a member of this esteemed organisation, but she did produce a paper for it, on the germination of the spores of Agaracinii. Although well received at the time by the society, the paper was never printed, and Beatrix's research is now lost. In her early scientific sketches, Beatrix's vibrancy of colour hints towards the delicate, intricate and bright illustrations that would become the foundation of her later storybooks. Visitors to the exhibition can see her illustration of fly agaric, the toxic hallucinogenic mushroom Amanita muscaria. It demonstrates how accurately she could draw and also suggests something of the magical qualities of her storybooks. Peter Rabbit came to life after Beatrix transformed a letter into a storybook about a naughty rabbit named Peter that she had written to Noel Moore, the five-year-old son of her old governess, Annie Moore, to cheer him up when he was recovering from scarlet fever. When it was published in 1902 by Warren & Co., the tale of Peter Rabbit sold thousands of copies and Beatrix's world changed almost overnight. Her career blossomed, the many letters she had written to the children of friends suddenly found a different purpose, as did the names and personalities of pets she had kept over the years. On those long summer holidays in the Lake District, Beatrix filled sketchbooks with views over Derwent water, making sure to capture the vibrant colours of the landscape so that she could transform them into settings for books. She labelled the sketchbooks with the names of the characters for which they would form the scenery. These sketchbooks are unquestionably my favourite items in the upcoming exhibition. The picturesque and detailed watercolours are displayed alongside the finished artworks for scenes from The Tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle, The Tale of Benjamin Bunny and The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin. Her ability to dream up squirrels with tails for sails and naughty kittens climbing up chimneys in settings from the heights of the fells and the lakesides to the fireside of her Cumbrian farmhouse hilltop which is now in trust care and open to visitors, never fails to amaze me. Beatrix bought the 17th century farmhouse called Hilltop in near Sori in 1905. Although it was never her permanent home, 
Thousands of visitors make the pilgrimage there every year to see the place where Beatrix set many of her little books. Hilltop's farmyard became Jemima Puddleduck's home. Inspired by its real-life unwanted residents, it was also the setting for The Tale of the Roly-Poly Pudding, later republished as The Tale of Samuel Whiskers, where the rats Anna Maria and Samuel Whiskers scurry about the farmhouse. The finished artwork of the last illustration of that book is on display in the exhibition and is an especially significant piece. It shows the two rats fleeing the farm with a stolen wheelbarrow, while a figure in the distance watches on, dismayed that her wheelbarrow has been stolen. This figure is Beatrix herself. It is the first time she appears in one of her tales, as part of the extended, magical world she has created. I find it poignant to see Beatrix at home in the settings of her books, with her characters. Just as she examines specimens from the natural world, Beatrix Potter, drawn to nature, puts Beatrix's relationship with the National Trust under the microscope. She didn't move permanently to the Lake District until she was aged 47, after her marriage to country solicitor William Helis in 1913. Once there, Beatrix Helis established herself as an extensive landowner and farmer. She recognised the threat of uncontrolled development in the area and worried that the places she had fictionalised were threatened in real life. Using her knowledge of the land, her pen name Beatrix Potter, and the income from her books, she encouraged her readers to donate to the growing trust. She also bought land herself, sometimes as a partner with the trust, to help protect the Lake District and make sure it was kept accessible. The scouts and girl guides were welcome to camp on her land. She was a member of the Landowners' Community Association and an almost lifelong member of the Commons, Open Spaces and Footpaths Preservation Society. She was one of the greatest supporters the Trust has ever had, fervently believing that the landscapes from which she had drawn so much joy should be protected so that others could experience them. She once wrote, The Trust is a noble thing, and immortal. She left thousands of acres of farmland to the Trust after her death. Today, our head office, Helis, is named after her, and carpeted with wool from her beloved Herdwick sheep. Ultimately, Beatrix Potter, drawn to nature, bookends Beatrix's life using her own possessions from the collections of the Trust and from those of the V&A, which cares for a huge collection of her artworks, letters and photographs. Its collection started with a bequest from engineer and Potter enthusiast Leslie Linder. The exhibition explores her early fascination with the natural world and her commitment to protecting the landscape she loved. Her scientific study, her personal relationships and her celebrated careers as both author and farmer show how Beatrix was drawn to nature and how her success was undoubtedly drawn from it. Now let's hear from Caroline Cotgrove, one of a team of trust conservators responsible for making sure the objects in trust care were safe to be on display in the Beatrix Potter Drawn to Nature exhibition. This piece is read by Akia Henry. The 200 objects on display in the Beatrix Potter Drawn to Nature exhibition come from the collections of the National Trust, VNA, and other lenders. The majority of the trust objects on display in the exhibition can usually be seen at Beatrix's former home Hilltop and the Beatrix Potter Gallery, both in Cumbria. 
Before the collections could make their way to London to be shown at the V&A, they had to be examined by conservators to check they were stable enough to travel and be displayed for the duration of the exhibition. Any objects that needed specialist cleaning or repair were brought to the Royal Oak Foundation Conservation Studio at Knoll in Kent, where conservators with expertise in paper, furniture and decorative arts carried out treatments using specialist equipment and materials. Among the objects requiring attention was a miniature birdcage which had been part of Beatrix's doll's house and needed careful cleaning. The surface detail of the Japanese Tansu parquetry cabinet was revealed and the structure was made stable. The exhibition has given us a renewed focus on these incredible collections and improved our knowledge of the objects in our care. For me, seeing the detail of Beatrix's actual drawings has been a wonderful experience. One watercolour, The Tale of Two Bad Mice, features the tiny birdcage we'd conserved, so it was a special moment to see the drawing alongside the object that inspired it. Beatrix Potter, Drawn to Nature, opens at the V&A from the 12th of February and will be running throughout the year. For more information, including how to book tickets, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash drawn dash to dash nature. Seaton Delible Hall in Northumberland was synonymous with mischief, trickery, drama and surprise. This spring, the curtain rises on a £7.8 million project to restore the mansion and reflect the theatricality of its past. Writer Katie Blanchard went for a look around. The article is read by Akia Henry. Entering Seaton Delaval Hall through the great columns framing the building, I'm greeted by the imposing sight of six life-size plaster figures above my head. Representing astronomy, architecture and sculpture on one side, and geography, painting, and music on the other. The ethereal statues were crafted in situ some two metres above ground level to the design of architect Sir John Vanbrugh. Alongside them, suspended from the ceiling, is a rather more modern installation, a magnificently gleaming four-metre-wide mirrored sphere. Craning my neck to look up, I can see every corner of the central hall reflected in its shiny surface, from the black and white marble and limestone checkered floor to the elaborately carved stonework and arches. The sphere is called Sea and Be Seen, created by visual artist Imogen Chloé and scenographer Niall Black. It's one of a number of temporary creative installations here that pay homage to the history of the hall and particularly the exuberant Delaval family who lived here in Georgian times. General Manager Emma Thomas says... Every part of the hall was designed to impress. With the Delavals, guests always had to expect the unexpected. I've no doubt they would have approved this addition. For the gay Delaval family, everything was a show. They earned Seaton Delaval Hall a reputation as one of the most notorious houses in Georgian Britain by throwing wild parties and staging elaborate performances and pranks, many of which involved the use of mirrors. Raucous parties would end with unwitting guests retiring to their rooms, only to find the walls would appear to fall away, exposing them half-dressed or that the bed would tip up and propel them into cold water. The Delavals were an influential and wealthy Northumbrian family whose rise to prominence had begun at the Battle of Hastings. They commanded respect across the region for generations. In 1718, 
Admiral George Delaval commissioned Vanbrugh, one of the most sought-after architects of the day, to design him a new mansion in place of the family's old one. Vanbrugh had carved out his reputation on the grand estates of Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire and Castle Howard in North Yorkshire. Sadly, neither lived to see Seaton Delaval Hall reach completion, and the Admiral's nephew, Captain Francis Delaval, inherited the estate with much work still to do. Francis, his wife Rhoda and their 12 children began the next chapter in the hall's history. But its reputation for notoriety came largely as a result of the behaviour of Francis Blake Delaval, the eldest son. Francis Blake was an amateur actor, regularly staging performances in London and at Seaton Delaval Hall starring his friends and family. He inherited the hall in 1752 and brought numerous entertainers to the house, hosting parties at which his trickery reached new heights. As Emma explains, Francis's capers and illusions were designed to astonish and entertain. One party began with the entire hall shrouded in darkness. The high flyers of Northumbrian society arrived confused, thinking the place deserted. Then Francis proudly threw open the doors to the newly completed magnificent stone stables. The feast was laid out there rather than in the usual dining room, so the guests would be wowed with the grandeur in which their horses were to be kept. After a century of renown as a party house, the hall's fortunes waned as the number of surviving family members began to dwindle and local industries declined. In 1814, the estate eventually passed from Edward, the last surviving Delaval, to his nephew, Sir Jacob Astley. In 1822, catastrophe followed. A fire tore through the mansion, leaving the central hall in ruins and the southeast wing unsalvageable. Today, you can see doors from the upper floors of the central block leading to where the demolished wing once stood. The fire marked a period of decline for the hall, with subsequent owners in the 19th century lacking either the funds or the will to turn around the fortunes of the estate. Despite everything, Seaton Delaval Hall's spirit lived on. Lord and Lady Hastings, who owned the hall for much of the 20th century, dedicated their lives to improving it. It came to the Trust in 2009, and this year, a £7.8 million project to conserve the house and tell the story of its most exuberant owners is reaching its finale at last. The project has been supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the Wolfson Foundation, Garfield Western Foundation and a wide range of other donors. Building on the Hastings' work, the property team set about conserving parts of the building damaged by the fire and the decades of neglect that followed. Project manager Helen Nisbet says, The central hall's imposing spiral staircases have become structurally unsound and presented one of the biggest challenges. Each stone step is individually fitted to its neighbouring step with no central supporting structure, a feat of engineering at the time of their construction. A team of specialists had to repair or replace each step individually, all while socially distancing, as the work was carried out during the height of the pandemic. I admire their skill as I join the other visitors using the staircases to move between the basement and the central hall, areas that were once brimming with activity during lively parties. The project has also involved re-roofing the west wing and reflooring the almost derelict basement. 
Level access to the latter means even more visitors can enjoy the space, where Vanbrugh's beautiful arches and vaulted stone ceilings are now bathed in sympathetic lighting. Helen says, The architecture suggests that no area was off-limits to the Delaval's guests. The vaulted ceilings in the basement and the impressive long gallery in the West Wing, which was a service wing, point to these areas being designed to be seen and to impress, just as much as the main living and entertaining rooms. Outdoors, the project team has recreated Vambra's design for the estate, opening up magnificent views that had become overgrown and lost and reintroducing old pathways so visitors can explore more of the landscape. The changes place the hall firmly centre stage. It can now be admired from all corners of the estate, as it would have been in the Delaval's time. The frivolity of the gay Delavals comes back to life out here too. Turning a corner in the southeast gardens, I'm caught off guard by the sight of a giant mirrored cube that plays tricks with perspective. It's intended to echo the spirit of the gardens, which were designed to conceal and reveal various features and views. As I continue my walk, I come across visitors surprising their unwitting friends by using newly installed speaking tubes to broadcast their voices to the far side of the wobbly-edged, crinkle-crankle hedge. Alongside the conservation work, the team has installed a host of new facilities for visitors. There are accessible pathways, a cafe in the old brew house, and a play area in the woodland, ingeniously titled The Delaval Palladium following a local competition to suggest names for the theatre-inspired playground. Later this spring, the final part of the project will be complete when the West Wing reopens. Here, visitors can enjoy performances and pranks that bring back that Delaval spirit. Families will be invited to stage their own performances in the Baroque-style theatre in the Old Kitchen. Upstairs, visitors can take part in the Game of Life, an interactive version of a traditional Georgian game of morals where only the most upstanding characters have a chance of survival. The fire of 1822 means we don't have an extensive collection of original items here, explains Emma. That's given us the opportunity to be creative with the way we tell the hall's stories and bring the Delaval spirit to life. Visitors can even find playful clues to Seaton Delaval Hall's past in the basement, where a two-metre ship in a bottle tells the story not only of the maritime connections of Admiral George Delaval, but also the family's successful bottleworks company at nearby Seaton Sluice. The company was once the largest glass manufacturer in England and an important factor in the family's wealth. A few significant items from the hall's collection did survive the fire, including a set of 12 paintings of the Delaval family by artist William Bell. Visitors will be able to see one of these paintings up close in the new conservation studio in the mahogany room and find out what it takes to care for it. Other surviving items, such as furniture and ceramics rarely seen before, will be displayed in a new collection store, where visitors can explore them in different ways and watch films explaining how the items are conserved. The collection store is a concept born out of the Hall's Rising Stars partnership with nearby Northumbria University. Through the partnership, 
trust staff work with students to develop fresh ways for visitors to engage with the hall, while the students gain valuable experience of working in the heritage sector. Emma says, Local people feel a real connection with Seaton Delaval Hall. Many were involved in supporting the trust to raise the funds required to buy the hall. The project has allowed us to find ways, like the Rising Stars Partnership, to be an even more central part of the community. To the delight of those already familiar with the hall and newcomers alike, when the West Wing reopens, one of the Delaval's most infamous tricks will be recreated. The family's slumbering guests, a little worse for wear after a party the night before, are said to have awoken to the illusion of their bedroom completely inverted, with the furniture suspended from the ceiling. Emma adds, The spirit of the gay Delavals shines through every part of the place and, importantly, we've secured large parts of the hall for the future. Now we can really get on with telling some of the hall's many stories. This is just the start of what we have planned. Find out more about Seton Delaval and plan your visit at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Seton dash Delaval dash Hall. As spring starts to unfurl across the country, swathes of newly planted trees will be blossoming for the first time in cities and countryside, thanks to a trust initiative to bring the joy of blossom to as many people as possible. On the 24th of April 2021, thousands of people united in the first ever nationwide celebration of blossom. The digital landscape burst into bloom as people shared photos of their local blossoming trees as part of the Blossom Watch campaign, which was launched by the National Trust to encourage people to immerse themselves in this floral feast. This year, the National Trust is once again encouraging nature lovers to watch for blossoming buds and share them online on the 23rd of April, Blossom Watch Day, to celebrate the arrival of spring across the country. But alongside the buzz on social media, teams across the Trust will be picking up their spades to plant trees and make sure that there is even more blossom to enjoy in future years. Working with partners, the Trust is going to be planting blossoming trees in cities and countryside across England, Wales and Northern Ireland over the next five years. There are 50 planting projects already due for completion this year across four cities and 46 National Trust properties, so more blossom is set to bloom nationwide this spring. The new gardens and green spaces follow the success of the Trust's first Blossom Circles, which were unveiled in Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in London last May. Now about to bloom for the second time, the garden was created in partnership with the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and opened by him in a ceremony alongside Trust Director General Hilary McGrady and key workers from the NHS, Transport for London and other frontline staff. The garden was shaped by residents from the local community and is made up of 33 blossom trees, each representing a London borough. The trees are arranged in close circles made up of native species, so every spring the garden blooms with hawthorn, cherry, cherry plum and crabapple blossoms. In a society recovering from the pandemic, access to fresh air and natural beauty feels even more important. Annie Riley the Trust's Experience Development Manager for the Blossom Gardens, says, The Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park Garden 
quickly started to come to life after it was planted last year. It was delightful to see children rolling down the hills and people enjoying the space for quiet reflection. Blossoming trees are vital for thousands of species of wildlife, as they provide shelter and food throughout the year. For wildlife just starting to venture out in the first days of spring, the trees are a rich and early source of pollen. Later in the year, the autumn fruit bounty provides a feast for bees, butterflies, birds and more. Last winter, the Trust created similar copses at four more cities, with new gardens in Coventry, Newcastle, Nottingham and Plymouth set to bloom over the coming years. As Annie explains, in Coventry, blossom trees will be planted at the 70-acre Charterhouse Heritage Park to mark the city's tenure as City of Culture. The Trust has worked with Historic Coventry Trust, Coventry City Council and the local community to design the garden, which will encourage local people to escape and spend time in nature for many years to come. In Newcastle, partner Urban Green Newcastle has been working with the City Council and the Newcastle Gateshead Initiative to plant 26 varieties of ancient cherry tree, including Prunus Taihaku trees at Exhibition Park. This great white cherry tree species originates from Japan, but the species was thought extinct until a single specimen was found in a Sussex garden. Today, every Taihaku in the world stems from the Sussex tree. Exhibition Park, on the outskirts of the city and close to the university and the hospital, now has a double avenue swirl of these trees next to a lake with a circular pathway so people can enjoy the view. Blossom trees have been planted at two sites in Nottingham. The first is the historic Lenton Recreation Ground, which now boasts 28 ornamental cherry trees along a new path. It is 30 minutes from the city centre. Another 20 ornamental cherry trees form an avenue at St Mary's Rest Garden on the edge of the city. In Plymouth, the dramatic coastal landscape of Devil's Point will be tinged by a semicircle of newly planted blossom trees in the coming months. They will complement the existing wildflower meadows and offshore seagrass beds. This is an especially significant spot for local people, as it's where many go to wave off loved ones setting off to sea on naval operations. The gardens at Newcastle, Nottingham and Plymouth were made possible by players of the People's Postcode Lottery, who part-funded the projects. As well as new trees taking root in cities, you can visit 46 new sites for blossom trees at Trust Places. There are new orchards in development at Stourhead in Wiltshire and Antony in Cornwall, while an avenue of flowering cherry trees now greets visitors to Anglesey Abbey in Cambridgeshire. A new edible forest of fruit and nut trees, circled with blossoming hedgerows, is in the process of being created at Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire while a new generation of spring-flowering trees have been planted in the Lake District in Cumbria, Crom in County Fermanagh, the Gower in Glamorgan, and Brecon Beacons in Carmarthenshire. Meeting family or friends under a blossom tree is a lovely way to lift the spirits and reconnect with people, says Annie. It is such a simple pleasure for all ages. Grandparents and grandchildren can meet up outdoors and make some new memories together. Remember to share your photos online using hashtag BlossomWatch to spread the joy of this enchanting moment in nature's calendar. This year, we're encouraging people to take a blossom walk, view local blossom, or make a special visit to a National Trust garden. Visit the Trust's website to find out more. 
And by sharing your photos online using the hashtag BlossomWatch, you can help build a blossom crescendo for BlossomWatch Day on the 23rd of April. You can also help nature thrive by planting a tree. A heartfelt thank you to those of you who have already generously supported the Trust's tree planting campaign. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash plant dash a dash tree. As heritage craft skills decline, irreplaceable knowledge and traditions are being lost, putting historic buildings at risk. The new Heritage Skills Centre at Coles Hill in Oxfordshire offers courses and workspaces to traditional builders and craftspeople. Katie Dunn, who works for the National Trust in Buckinghamshire, Berkshire and Oxfordshire, went along to find out more. Her article is read by Glenn McCready. It's like magic. A scoop of quicklime into water, and in seconds the mixture is boiling in its bucket. We're all leaning in like Macbeth's witches round the cauldron to take a look. We are goggled and masked, as per the safety briefing, but you can still see eyes widening and then narrowing in grins of delight. We're gathered for the very first training course at the National Trust's new Heritage Skills Centre at Colesill in Oxfordshire. It's a traditional lime plastering course run by the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, or SPAB, in partnership with the National Trust. There are about 15 of us on the course, with three tutors and the course leader. I'm surprised at the diversity of reasons for coming. There are owners of old houses who want to DIY their own repairs, as well as experienced builders. Construction worker John, who's here with his apprentice daughter Charlotte, says, When I was young, I was happy to bash out new houses. Now I want to do something with more craft and job satisfaction. Jane has bought an old house and wants to be able to interact with her builders from a position of knowledge. Her presence on the course is rewarded almost at once when she explains how her plasterer has recommended stripping out the existing chestnut laths and replacing with stainless steel. The looks on the faces of the course tutors tell Jane everything she needs to know, even before they explain how the originals can easily be repaired. Christian Walker general manager of the Buscott and Colesill Estates, is the driving force behind the Heritage Skills Centre, which is on the site of the old model farm. The practical training courses are just one part of the vision for the centre. Christian hopes it'll soon become a hub for the practice and education of traditional building skills and rural crafts. There is a growing community using workshop spaces here, including a stonemason, a joiner and a blacksmith. In 2017, we embarked on a conservation project at Buscott Park, explains Christian. We had to import specialists from Europe to carry out the leadwork on the roof. It demonstrated the scarcity of conservation skills in this country in a very real way. I wanted to do something to help, because it's putting our heritage at risk. As with endangered species, there's a red list of heritage craft skills at risk of being lost entirely. According to the Heritage Crafts Association, which produces the list, 56 count as critically endangered and four have become extinct in the UK over the past generation. Some, like the hand-making of lacrosse sticks and cricket balls, perhaps are understandable given the way the world has changed since their inception, but many specialised building conservation skills are also on the list. Without them, 
it will become increasingly difficult to conserve the almost 5,000 historic buildings on Historic England's at-risk register. It's a loss of immeasurable proportion, says course leader and building surveyor Marianne Sir. Traditional skills require continuity, a passing down of knowledge from one generation to the next. Homeowners are constantly telling me they can't find anyone to lime plaster their house or repair their old sash windows, and hardly any technical colleges are teaching these crafts. Without skilled craftspeople, we can't conserve old buildings. Christian is glad that the Heritage Skills Centre is reinstating Colesill's historic role as an education and skills hub and a centre of creativity for practitioners. In its mid-19th century heyday, the model farm here was at the cutting edge of UK agricultural progress and visitors came to learn about building design and farming best practice. Now the model farm buildings are being sensitively repurposed as affordable business units for craftspeople. Christian is forging partnerships with universities and technical colleges to provide training and qualifications, apprenticeships and employment in traditional building skills. For local communities, there are new exhibition spaces, partnerships and outreach programmes planned. It's all being done with the help of funding from the Worshipful Company of Plasterers, the Lord Farringdon Charitable Trust, Orton Trust and private donors. Back on our lime plastering course, Tutor Sean Wheatley tells me how a similar course, 25 years ago, changed his life. I was skimming metre after metre of flat gypsum on new-build houses, but once I'd done the lime plastering course, I could travel the UK working on historic houses, he said. I had to recreate a ceiling rose and make my own tools to mould it in situ. I found it more fulfilling, and now I enjoy teaching those skills to others. I leave with a working knowledge of lime plastering and a leaf tile I've cast myself. I'm happy with that. Coles Hills Heritage Skills Centre will be offering more courses throughout 2022, including ornamental plasterwork and letter cutting in stone. To find out more, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash buscot and coleshill estates. Now, in An Object I Love, we ask a trust expert to tell us about an item in our collection that they feel they have a really special personal connection with. Christo Kefalus, Senior National Curator for Global and Inclusive Histories, describes the history of a portrait of Huang Yadong, a young Chinese botanist, at Knoll in Kent. This piece is read by Akia Henry. My love of history was born out of childhood trips to visit my Greek relatives in Athens, the Parthenon on the Athenian Acropolis especially captured my imagination and inspired my ambition to become an archaeologist. I dreamt of an Indiana Jones lifestyle where I met people from different cultures and explored histories of the world. But I found the reality of field research to be rather less glamorous. Instead, I discovered a passion for curatorial work when I started documenting excavation finds it made me reflect on how the objects would be interpreted when people saw them in a museum or a national trust house. Becoming Global and Inclusive Histories curator felt like a great adventure because I could really consider the influence of global culture in the trust collections and how to make it accessible. The first place I visited in my new role was Knoll, the historic home of the Sackville Wests in Kent. 
Upon entering the Reynolds room, I was captivated by the portrait of Wang Yadong, born circa 1753. It is not known when he died. Wang Yadong was a botanist from Guangzhou, China. He travelled to England in 1774 when he was just 20 years old to expand his knowledge of natural sciences and develop trade relationships. Huang's company was much sought after during his trip, thanks to his knowledge of Chinese medicine, botany and ceramic manufacture. One stop on his circuit was John Frederick Sackville, 3rd Duke of Dorset at Knoll. It was rare, but not unheard of, for foreign visitors to come to England for diplomatic causes and personal interest, and they were often treated as living curiosities. In the 18th century, visitors were judged on their demeanour and appearance. Huang's knowledge was valued, while his presence was also treated as novel entertainment. The Duke commissioned Britain's most successful portraitist, Sir Joshua Reynolds, 1723-92, to to paint Wang. In the picture, Huang sits cross-legged in red and blue robes, red slippers with gold piping and a conical hat. Together, his attire seems exaggerated to emphasise his Chinese heritage. Red conical hats were reserved for state officials in Guangzhou. I was struck by Reynolds' sensitive yet stylized representation of Wang, who appears contemplative. His face catches the light beautifully, a testament both to Reynolds' skills and to that of Knowles' conservators who restored the painting in 2018. Wang arrived in England during a time of expanding empire. British naval fleets circumnavigated the globe to explore uncharted lands, From 1600, they had established trade posts, some of which would eventually become monopolies throughout Asia, but tight foreign trade restrictions in China remained in the early 18th century. When Wang met Reynolds, he said that curiosity was part of the reason he made his journey. The comment makes me wonder what Wang's impressions of England must have been, and if his interactions influenced him later in life when he returned to Guangzhou. When I stand in front of Reynolds' painting... Admiring the artist's skill and transfixed by Wang's arresting gaze, I see an enterprising figure who travelled to form relationships and gather support for endeavours at home. The reason I love the painting is because it reminds me of how long cross-cultural exchanges have been taking place and how important they continue to be in an increasingly connected world. If you'd like to discover more about this intriguing portrait, go to nationaltrustcollections.org.uk. Project manager Nabil Abbas works in the Skell Valley in North Yorkshire. He explains how local organisations and communities have come together to tackle the effects of climate change. His words are read by Glenn McCready. I've always enjoyed spending time outdoors in nature. My background is in ecology, and I've been working on conservation projects and nature reserve management for about 20 years. Before this role, I was working with farmers in the Sheffield-Lakeland area to deliver sustainable ways of reducing the risks and impact of flooding. That experience fitted quite nicely with the Skell Valley project. The River Skell runs through land which includes the Trust's Fountains Abbey and Studley Royal Estate, The abbey was founded in 1132, when 13 monks from York settled on the banks of the Skell. 
there was an early medieval corn mill powered by the river which would have supported the abbey. Later in the 18th century, the Aylaby family developed the water gardens at nearby Studley Royal, which are fed directly by the river. The river is an essential part of the landscape, but it is also a threat. In 2007, it burst its banks and damaged the abbey, as well as buildings in nearby Ripon. It flooded badly again in 2020. Silt from surrounding farmland regularly washes down river into the water garden ponds. We have to spend around £70,000 a year on desilting. Weather patterns are becoming more unpredictable as the climate changes, increasing the likelihood of more frequent and severe flooding in the area. The Skell Valley Project is a rescue plan to improve the health of the river and wider landscape, not just on the estate but upstream and downstream. We're working with local farmers and communities to create small ponds, put fences up so livestock can't trample the riverbanks, and resurface tracks, all of which will help the land hold back water and release it more slowly. We're creating new wetland habitats for a whole range of wildlife and also helping to make the landscape more resilient in periods of drought. With the help of volunteers, we'll be planting more trees to absorb carbon, as well as to help slow the flow of the river and make flooding downstream less likely. Another part of the project focuses on celebrating Skell Valley's heritage. We're working with the West Yorkshire Archive Service to find out how land use and flooding in the valley have changed over time. Volunteers are helping transcribe maps and documents dating back to when the Abbey was founded. We'll also be recording oral histories from people who live and work in the valley. I'm excited about the work to make the valley more accessible for people. We're working with landowners to create three waymarked trails, including one suitable for mobility vehicles. The valley is full of amazing history and wildlife, and we want to share that with people. The Scale Valley Project is delivered in partnership with Nidderdale AONB and several other local organisations, community groups and landowners. The Trust is grateful for vital funding provided by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, European Regional Development Fund, the Wolfson Foundation, the Royal Oak Foundation and other funders and donors. Find out more about how the Trust is tackling climate change at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash climate dash change. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this spring. Please make sure to check individual property websites or the National Trust app or call the property for the latest information before you visit. Two Beatrix Potter events are taking place in Cumbria this spring. The Language of Flowers exhibition at the Beatrix Potter Gallery runs from the 27th of March to the 30th of October while at Allen Bank, a giant portrait of the beloved children's author will be on display from the 1st of March. A new exhibition at the Beatrix Potter Gallery in Hawkshead explores the importance of flowers in Beatrix Potter's art and life. Bringing together her books, sketches, watercolours and decorative items, the exhibition looks at flowers as both medicine and food and the importance of Beatrix's flower-filled hilltop garden in her world-famous books. Artist Hideyuki Sobue is creating a giant portrait of Beatrix on one of the fire-damaged walls in Allen Bank, the home of Trust co-founder Canon Hardwick Rawnsley. The mural, in Sobue's trademark graphic style, 
has been inspired by Beatrix's friendship and shared conservation legacy with Rawnsley. At Nunnington Hall in North Yorkshire, the Cause and Effect exhibition runs from the 19th of February to the 3rd of July. Explore the geography and rich wildlife of the River Rye through a new art exhibition in partnership with North York Moors and the Rye Vitalise Landscape Partnership. New films show the social history of the river's local area. Visitors can join in with workshops, talks and hands-on activities running alongside the exhibition. And at Chartwell in Kent, an outdoor photography exhibition, Churchill and the Crown, will be on display until the 27th of February. This photography exhibition charts the relationship between the young Queen Elizabeth II and Sir Winston Churchill and brings to life the genuine warmth and friendship that they shared. Enlarged images displayed on the terrace lawn show Churchill's friendship with the Queen's parents, the Queen's coronation day and more. From the beginning of March until the end of October, Lindisfarne Castle in Northumberland will be home to an exciting new soundscape installation. Lindisfarne reopens for the season with a new soundscape installation, Song After Nature, by artist Paul Rooney. The work evokes renowned Portuguese cellist Madame Sugia, using the howling of the seals residing around the island as a siren song for the impending climate catastrophe. Both Tinsfield in North Somerset and Nymans in West Sussex will be lit up by Ignite Fire and Fantasy in February and early March. Follow garden trails after dark to discover fairies dancing in the trees, wildlife sculpted in willow and dragons ablaze. Booking is essential for these events. Tickets for trust members are £16.50 for adults and £12 for children aged 3 to 16. Book your tickets at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Tinsfield and nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Nymans. And finally, get your little ones outdoors this Easter with a sensory trail taking place at trust properties across the country. Complete 10 nature-themed activities, such as spotting the signs of spring, to claim your chocolate treat. Well, that's all from us this spring issue. I hope you've enjoyed it. And do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Spring 2022 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Akia Henry, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinnell. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding and all items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive them, please call the RNIB on 01733 375-370 or you can write enclosing the membership number to Sales and Operations RNIB Midgate House Midgate Peterborough PE1 1TN This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast For more information on this and other National Trust podcasts visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.